Welcome back to America's Talking. Today, I am joined by my friend, Eric Cohn. Eric is the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Acton Institute. Acton Institute is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and their mission is to, quote, promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. So typically I have lots of notes and questions for my guests, but Eric has incredible gift of gab and knows a lot about so many subjects that I literally only have two topics that I know we're going to talk about, but Eric is going to make them very interesting for us today because they're things he knows a ton about. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about Eric was to many people, it seems to me, faith and religion is something so far above and beyond politics. Or in other words, politics seems so beneath and pedestrian and sort of like a Philistine kind of a thing compared to folks' religion and faith. Uh, But more and more, and I think people have said this in a number of different ways, but as faith kind of recedes from the American consciousness, as fewer and fewer, fewer people identify themselves as religious, politics supplants religion in terms of providing meaning and making meaning for folks in their life. How do these things interact? What is the proper place of faith in politics and what's the proper place of politics in faith? I always liked the line from William F. Buckley Jr. who said, my faith informs my views. So, you know, as somebody who is uh, a practicing Catholic, yes, my faith informs the way that I look at the political world and political questions, but uh, it doesn't dictate my answers to it. Um, my friend Stephanie Slade at Reason Magazine, uh, I always liked her description that um, personally she's conservative, but her politics are quite radical. So just because one conducts themselves in a very conservative way, um, it lives as a, a practicing Catholic or a, a practicing Jew or, or Muslim, doesn't necessarily mean that that guides every political answer that they're going to give. Um, so I think there's an interplay between the two. What, what Acton focuses on is if we look at the, the, the great hockey stick of human progress, right? So somewhere around the 1700s, people had been living up to that point on you know, something like a dollar, $2 a day. And then in the late 1600s, early 1700s, you start to see this huge explosion in quality of life and uh, uh, people's, uh, the, the value that they generate. And you know, there's a lot of explanations for, for why this happens, but What's important to us is it's an embrace of liberal democratic capitalism, um, a free market system. Uh, And if you really want to get deep in the weeds on that, I highly recommend the the bourgeois books by uh, the economic historian Deirdre McCloskey, who has all these great theories on how rhetoric and the way we talked about these things influence those kinds of changes. But the, uh, the reality is that that kind of explosion in, in wealth and well-being is predicated on certain values that liberal democratic capitalism itself didn't create, and it doesn't have the ability to restore if lost. And that's why Acton's mission is to promote a free and virtuous society, that there is a responsibility inherent in operating as a free individual uh, to act in certain ways, because in, in a business world, in a personal world, you want to deal with people who are moral and virtuous, who aren't going to try to cheat you. Um, you want systems to hold people who do 
nefarious things accountable. Uh, but you would rather them be operating on a system of virtues and values that guides them towards uh, honest dealings um, and then only have that kind of system there as a backup uh, to make sure that you have a way to enforce all of that. So if we don't talk about, we don't promote the virtue element of it, uh, you know, the you know, Schumpeterian forces of creative destruction, the things that get rid of bad, poorly managed companies and obsolete uh, business ideas, those same forces can erode um, good things as well. I mean, it's just such a drive towards mm -hmm. efficiency that it may look at even uh, need necessary institutions and think, ah, we can, we can kind of do away with this. We can eat away at the edges of it. Um, I think you need a people with an understanding of virtue to maintain those kinds of institutions and to make sure that the system that has created, you know, the greatest poverty alleviation in the history of mankind, the, you know, this is an old saying, but the, it's a very boring question to ask, um, you know, why is there poverty? Poverty is, the condition we come into this world in. You come into this world completely naked and penniless. Uh, it's only interesting to ask why are people wealthy? And we have so much great literature on why that is now. And we think the, one of the important parts of that is an understanding of virtue. Um, and we need to couple that with the free market side of it, that there's a lot of groups out there that I think do a great job in advocating for the uh, utilitarian or the consequentialist view for why free markets are great. Um, but we think that there's another element to that. And that's what Acton is focused on. I'm really interested about that question because this idea of creative destruction uh, undergirds a lot of what people think of when they think of why a free market is good. Bad ideas are punished. Um, it's somewhat merit-based. Uh, Incumbent actors always have to defend themselves. Whoever provides the most value ultimately wins. What's an example of this idea that that is a that's a destructive force? What what's something that that sort of mechanism? Uh, what's something it destroyed that that would have been better left alone? I think you can see this, and this is as social scientists will say is an overdetermined phenomenon. But I think the, what we see right now with a lot of the state of our institutions, I think, could be connected to um, not wholly, but in part, to that kind of relentless drive for efficiency. That that's really how I understand creative destruction is. It's a drive for efficiency. Anybody who you know in their lives, I think, will be able to identify circumstances where the most efficient solution shouldn't be rejected out of hand, but it's not always the right solution that you need. Um, the, the old adage of Chesterton's fence, the efficient answer there when you come across a fence in the middle of nowhere is to say, get rid of the fence. The Chesterton's fence argument is to say, well, understand why it is there first, because there may be reasons that you don't, that aren't on the surface available to you. You need to plumb the depths to understand why it's there. Um, that's kind of the forces of tradition. Uh, I can't remember who it was who said it, but you know, tradition is democracy for the dead. Um, if you need to have that understanding of why things have come to be the way they are, because uh, if you're just looking for efficiency, you can obliterate a whole lot and you may lose things that give meaning and value in, in people's lives. Um, you could probably come up with a lot of examples of that, but I, I really think the way that, especially the uh, the internet, I think is a perfect example of this. Um, it has facilitated 
connections. You know, we, you, I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you're in Chicago, Illinois, and it's enabled us to talk to each other just as easily as I could talk to my next door neighbor and just as easily as I could talk to somebody in the Philippines. Um, what you lose in that, though, and as somebody who has spent now a good portion of my career managing uh, digital communities, digital communities can be great for certain things. Um, there's more efficient in terms of bringing people together than getting people into a church basement or getting people to a Rotary Club meeting. But they don't provide the same actual community that those things provide. So if it are all left up to that drive for relentless efficiency, I think you lose a lot of, of what you gain from being part of a church group, from being part of a Rotary Club or um, a, a Chamber of Commerce. Um, so you. I think those things have value even, and you need to uh, again have an understanding of why they're valuable to fight to maintain them against, you know, to understand the internet in this sense as a complementary feature, not as a replacement feature. Yeah. So that's, I, I don't want to go into Friedrich Nietzsche on this podcast and I never have until this point, but I think we have to maybe. Um, so obviously the famous phrase there is, is God is dead. Um, and we have killed them essentially. So, and, and that is really a commentary on, uh, science is what he was talking about is not a meaning making institution, right? It's just a tool. And similar, I think what your argument is, is the market is just kind of this tool. And, uh, I think Jordan Peterson actually had this really great line where he sort of said, uh, God is dead, but, and this is really graphic. So pardon me, but he is alive enough that we're sort of feasting on the corpse. So there are all these institutions that have been built based on those values that are slowly eroding. And I'm curious, one, where do you find uh, us most at risk in terms of those sort of really core institutions of the United States, for example, uh, that maybe are eroding a bit? I think the thing that puts us most at risk is that we have lost an understanding of what institutions themselves are for. Um, an example of a good functioning institution in the world today would be something like the army. You go into the army as one kind of person, you come out as a different kind of person. The army and the military are formative institutions. Now, all institutions in a way are supposed to be formative. The malfunction in our modern, so many of our modern institutions is they have ceased to have that formative role. Um, this is Yuval Levin at, at the American Enterprise Institute. This is his point about what so many institutions have become is nothing more than platforms on which people stand and perform for their own personal benefit. Rather than doing the thing that institutions are supposed to condition people to do, which to, to ask yourself the question, given my role here, what should I do? Now, that may not always be the thing that is most personally beneficial to you, but is the thing that is beneficial to the purpose of the institution. Institutions are formed to accomplish things. The military is formed for a specific purpose. Congress is formed for a specific purpose. And as Levin points out, right now, the problem is the New York Times and uh, Harvard University are different institutions. They're supposed to exist for different purposes, but they have come essentially to exist only for people to stand on top of them and complain about oppression. That is not institutions performing their role. And I think we have 
typically defined ourselves. I mean, the, the fundamental institution of, of human life is the family. We define so much meaning in our lives based on our free association with these institutions. Family's a less free association, but you know, you do choose ideally to stay with the family that brought you into this world. You know, we have the free association with these institutions. We want to draw meaning out of them. This gets back to something you mentioned earlier is the way that people are seeking meaning from things that can't give them that kind of meaning. You know, the government's never going to be able to love you. But I think people, because they want to feel a part of something larger than themselves, and they're not getting that from the place where people throughout history have typically gotten it, which is from a belief in a higher power, which is from a religious faith. They're now seeking it from places that can't really give it to them and produce a whole lot of bad knock-on effects as a result of people seeking that greater meaning from places that it's never going to provide it to them. One person that I think of in that, uh, in that realm of meaning, faith, and government is a man that you all are profiling currently uh, at the Acton Institute, a guy by the name of Jimmy Lai, who has become somewhat more known in the last two years, but is really a, an extraordinary figure that I think too few people know about. Um, could you talk a little bit about Jimmy and what Acton is doing with him? Yeah, we I certainly agree that he's a remarkable figure and that too few people know about him, which is why we are producing a documentary about his life um, that'll be finalized very soon, a film called The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. So Jimmy Lai, uh, born in China, comes to Hong Kong pretty early on in his life. He's the classic entrepreneur. Uh, he builds multiple businesses, becomes wealthy building those businesses. And for Jimmy, the real turning point in his life, well, there's two of them. Um, one of them, he says, is a friend giving him a copy of Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, um, which is, I always love those kinds of stories where people can cite, you know, this is a book that changed my life. Like a really great book is the kind of thing that will change your a good book will change your thinking and a great book will have an incredible impact on your thinking so as to shape the direction of your life. And that was true for Jimmy with Frederick Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And then the events of Tiananmen Square uh, were another huge turning point in Jimmy's life. And uh, without getting all the way deep into the story of it, essentially what he ends up doing is starting a newspaper in Hong Kong called Apple Daily, which is a pro-democracy newspaper Back in the late 90s, you had the handover of Hong Kong from the British to the Chinese with the promise that you would have one country, two systems. And sadly, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that promise by the Chinese, has, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is not being honored. And the people of Hong Kong are being oppressed. Freedom of speech is falling away. Freedom of assembly is falling away. Uh, the kind of basic freedoms that you and I enjoy as Americans, uh, that Hong Kongers have enjoyed up until the last few years are being taken away from them. And there's a line in the trailer for our film that always strikes me every time I hear it, uh, which is, we've never had a territory of seven and a half million people who've lived and breathed these basic freedoms, having it taken away from them like this. 
And uh, Jimmy is currently sitting in a prison in Hong Kong. He's been tried and convicted twice uh, on essentially bogus charges. And he is currently waiting a third trial on violations of uh, this so-called national security law that actually, in addition to being so malleable as to convict just about anybody for anything they wanted to convict them of, also applies retroactively. So it applies to things you did before the law was passed. Uh, you can, I think, clearly read there what the agenda of a law like that is. And Jimmy, because he is a Hong Kong citizen, he has British citizenship, he is a billionaire, he could have left at any point in time, and he didn't, he chose to stay. Uh, when the protests erupted in Hong Kong, he didn't just march with them. He marched in the front of the line and he wanted the people, the government officials, he wanted the Chinese Communist Party officials to see his face, to see it was him, which is an incredible kind of bravery uh, and one that we think exemplifies the best of what the people of Hong Kong have on offer and what they're losing in this now depredation of their freedom by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, talk about someone, right, who didn't use an institution as a platform to perform stuff. This is someone who basically came to a country in a cargo ship, built a bajillion dollar empire uh, and could have left that all behind, but believed so much in the nature of the institution that he was willing to risk all that it given him which to me is so profound and he's such an amazing person. What, what are your biggest takeaways from that story just in terms of what we should learn from people like him? Courage is so incredibly important. Uh, and it can be, it's the kind of thing where you may not even, you may not recognize it first. You know, fortunately, most of us are not going to end up in a situation like Jimmy Lai finds himself in. Um, or at least God, I hope that we don't. But when you're in, when you encounter those moments in your life where you are, the things that you believe in are being put to the test. Uh, what is your answer going to be? You know, as I have worked on this film, I have found myself asking myself that question a lot. It's the kind of thing where I've, I've dedicated my professional life to work centered around a philosophical belief system that I believe in very deeply. Um, and now with my work at Acton, also incorporating my religious faith, which I, by definition, believe in very deeply. And you have to keep asking yourself the question of like, at, at the moment of testing, what would you do? And it may be a very low level test of that. Uh, it not something to the level that Jimmy Lai is encountering. But what would you do in that situation? And you know, you, you want the answer to be that you do the right thing. You'd say the truth. You'd speak the truth, regardless of how it cashes out at the end of the day. But I think we should all be humble to recognize that, boy, we really don't know the answer to that question. We think we know how we would react, but I don't think we really know that. And what we can learn from looking at Jimmy Lai's story is we can see a testament to that kind of courage at the cost of losing everything. I mean, Jimmy is almost certainly going to spend the rest of his life in prison when he had the opportunity at any point to flee, that he had the opportunity at any point to deny the things that he believes and to run away. And he didn't do that. 
So I think it's, it is a story reminiscent of that of, of people like Nelson Mandela and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, people who we benefit from knowing their stories and having these testaments to that kind of fortitude, that kind of courage, and that kind of conviction of belief that I think should strengthen our own resolve when we encounter, even if it's the you know trivial kinds of questions in comparison, are still important in our lives and the lives of others. There's something we can learn from those examples. Beautiful. Uh, Eric hosts. Eric, do you host two podcasts for Acton? Acton Unwind and Acton Line, or just one? I host weekly Acton Unwind, which is our roundtable conversation that comes out every Monday. And I am the occasional host of our interview podcast, Acton Line, which comes out every Wednesday. Both are fabulous. Uh, I highly recommend our listeners check them out. Eric Cohn, thanks for joining us on America's Talking. Thanks so much for having me.